0: You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. At now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Crystal Clayton. Dr. Clayton received her PhD from New Mexico State University in Experimental Social Psychology. Her dissertation, The Influence of Cognitively Accessible Religious Thoughts on Moral Performance, That sounds like a good interview topic all (laughs) on its own. She is currently a clinical associate professor in the Department of Psychology at UNT and the UNT Frisco psychology program coordinator. Dr. Clayton has an impressive background spanning various quite remarkable and diverse areas of interest. As a faculty member at Western Kentucky University and now at the University of North Texas, she has designed and teaches a rather unique psychology and law course pertaining to criminal justice titled Psychology of the Offender. Additionally, she's been involved in an innovative program involving the use of music in physical therapy sessions to enhance the recovery of stroke patients, and yet another area involving (laughs) the process of teaching and learning through the power of play and class interaction. Not surprisingly, after reviewing her background, I discovered that Dr. Clayton was the recipient of the College of Education and Behavioral behavioral sciences excellent in teaching award from Western Kentucky University. Wow. <laughs> Welcome Dr. Clayton. It's so great to have you here. Hello,
1: it's nice to be here. You make me sound really good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's all you were doing. It's very, very interesting. I've been looking forward to speaking to you about all of these areas of interest. They seem quite forward-thinking and relevant to very many different populations. Let's begin with your involvement regarding individuals in the criminal justice system, both those incarcerated and persons in law enforcement. How did
1: you get interested in this area? It's an interesting story. When I was in graduate school, I actually had a stalker who broke into my home, And when I got the police involved, they were very worried because of the nature of the crime. They interviewed people that I knew, couldn't figure out exactly who did it. And this person happened to get caught a couple of weeks later because he had been stalking various women within a 10-mile radius of my apartment. And when they found him, two children were hiding in a closet because their mother had stepped out of the home for a second to get groceries right down the street.
0: Oh, my word. And they
1: called the police. And when the police arrived, he was passed out drunk on the bed. So from there, I was asked if I could identify the person. I could not but I was able to identify all of my belongings and thus we moved forward to go to trial. I had a misconception about how the justice system worked. I didn't know that people who were accused of a crime often couldn't afford an attorney or that the attorneys who were provided were so overwhelmed with work because most people who are accused of a crime cannot actually afford an attorney. So there were a lot of lessons I had to learn along the way. One being that, yes, these types of attorneys are often under an incredible amount of stress because they're so overworked. Sometimes they turn to substance abuse So in my case, one attorney died of a heart attack. Another committed suicide. And the third was an alcoholic and was not able to show up to defend the client.
0: And these were all the people representing your stalker?
1: Yes. And so when I go to court, I kept getting turned away because there wasn't an attorney present for the defendant. And I started to wonder, is this typical? And when the person who stalked me finally got his sentence... I was also asked how much the items were worth because he also took a lot of items from my home. And I kept thinking, okay, I will get the money back, right? Well, there really isn't an ability to compensate victims when the person who has committed the act against you just doesn't have any income. So my mind just kind of started to swim a little bit. And as a social psychologist, I wondered, okay, am I the only victim here? And I finally settled on, no, I'm probably not. So I started watching the great crime documentaries. And the more I dove in, the more I realized there are a lot of people who are wrongfully accused or who end up in the system because they started off with a parent who got them addicted to meth at the age of three or four. So this doesn't happen to be a real choice that we tend to think it is, right? That we choose to commit crime versus go get a job. I'm going to be
0: a bad person type of decision.
1: You have a lot of hands that are dealt to you early on Mm -hmm. in life that very much carve out the path that you're going to lead as an adult. So when I got to Western Kentucky University, a wonderful woman by the name of Jackie Pope Torrance was teaching forensic psychology, but she had to get rid of the class because she got promoted to associate dean. She asked if I wanted it. I jumped at the chance, and I thought, you know, we already think that there's bad people, but based on what I've learned, what harm would it do if we develop some empathy for people who are incarcerated? Since... It's supposed to be about rehabilitation. It's supposed to be about, I've done my time, now I deserve this second chance. And I didn't find that a lot of people were being taught about this lesson that I myself had to learn on my own. So I decided I was gonna start collecting data about students' attitudes towards various areas of the criminal justice system as well as attitudes towards people who were incarcerated. I collected data at the beginning of the semester and then at the end of the semester, and the shifts in my students' attitudes were heartwarming, to say the least. Their attitudes towards the death penalty were shifting, towards prison reform were shifting, attitudes about things such as eyewitness testimony. Is my memory as good as I think it is? Well, no, it's not. Your memory is actually quite flawed, right? So it was becoming a class that was very rewarding to me and so every semester I've been collecting that data and every semester I'm noticing the same shifts.
0: I find it remarkable that you have taken an experience that I'm sure was very personally traumatic and taking it into a direction that is quite powerfully making a difference with your students and the other people that you have touched through what you've taught, instead of going the other road and becoming embittered towards someone that breaks the law and that you have experienced the effects as a victim, you've turned into quite a humanitarian because of it.
1: I've tried. Um, I have an attitude of, I'm gonna do the best I can with what I can not control. I knew I couldn't take that experience away. And of course, I did have plenty of moments where I was very angry that this had happened to me. My parents were incredibly worried. I'm sure they were. My dad drove five hours at two in the morning and screwed all my windows shut and slept on a couch. I mean, it was frightening. But as I became older and got more into the research and dealt more with students and watched more documentaries, I really started to come to terms with, okay, what is really happening here? What's a message that I want to deliver?
0: And I understand that one opportunity you arranged to achieve this is taking students that were dental students Mm -hmm. to a jail. Yes. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so when I was teaching this class at WKU, I would arrange for field trips. I needed my students to see what it's really like. It's not exactly what you see on Netflix or Amazon Prime, it's different. And I needed them to hear the, the rattling and the yelling, and I needed them to see people in distress in these adverse living conditions. And as we were walking down a particular hallway, we saw the dental chair. And I didn't see any equipment in there. And so I started asking, oh, is this where you do cleanings? And the jailer looks at me and goes, oh, no, we don't provide that type of dental care. I said, then what's the chair for? He responds, well, when there is excessive tooth decay or pain, we will pull the tooth but you have to ask for it. We put you on a wait list. We get the dentist here when we have enough people on the wait list. And then before the tooth gets pulled, we give you ibuprofen or Tylenol. And then we pull your tooth. And then we give you a couple of days worth of Tylenol under very controlled conditions. And then that's your dental care. And my students were shocked. I was shocked, I had this very naive idea about what kind of care happens to people who are incarcerated. And I started trying to think about what I could do to correct that as best as possible. So I connected with a mobile dental clinic at Western Kentucky University. They were going to the schools so that they could have their dental hygiene students learn how to clean teeth. And I thought, wow, think about all the interesting things they're going to find in a jail setting where people have been abusing drugs for a very long time. They've been impoverished for a very long time. They're not allowed to have dental floss because it's a safety issue. They're going to learn a lot about heavy care (laughs) of someone's mouth. And what if this helps them change the way they look at people who have been incarcerated? Because one day they will get out of prison or jail and hopefully they will have insurance. They will be able to get their teeth cleaned. And I want to again instill that type of empathy. So we got it put together. We had a whole year where dental hygiene students were bused to the jail and the mobile dental clinic followed. And then they would escort inmates onto the mobile dental unit and they would get
0: their teeth cleaned. And how did the students react to this?
1: Again, it was beautiful. They had very negative thoughts going in. They were scared. They didn't know how these people would look. Whether or not they would be respectful. And coming out of it, I read comments that they were incredibly thankful. Some of them teared up. They said they had not not felt like human beings since they had been incarcerated. Some of them have never, ever had their teeth cleaned before. They didn't even know that that really was an option. Wow. Yeah. And then there were several of the hygiene students who said, I I really want to volunteer for people who don't have this opportunity because it's very important for their health. And it is. We don't realize how much we have until we see those who don't in a simple teeth cleaning.
0: That's incredible. You discuss some pretty hard topics in your class. Yes. I know some things like suicide, mm-hmm. child sexual abuse. Yes intimate partner violence prevention. Mm -hmm. You have expert witnesses both from the both sides of of the legal issue and I'm sure some other things. Uh, You notice a change. You take scores. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on how you bring these issues in and what you see from introducing them to the students?
1: I start on day one. I make it very clear in my syllabus that we're going to talk about really difficult things. And that I believe that's what education is for. And that students can read anytime they want. They can watch documentary anytime they want. But to learn how to have these conversations in a way that's going to be productive is something that I'm really going to focus on. So I set the rules. And I talk about how important it is to be respectful. Because we all come from different backgrounds. And a way to start that, I actually share with my students my own experiences with my stalker. I share with them my own experiences with intimate partner violence to try to open up the dialogue to show my students I'm one of these people and I still don't react in these negative ways towards people who are incarcerated. And I find that helps me tremendously because if anyone could be upset or angry, it could easily be me. And I also talk about, before we have our guest speakers, this is important why does this matter to you because I find that if students don't think it's important then they're not going to be as attentive maybe they won't be as respectful so I always take my time before we start these topics to say this is why this matters and this is going to be disturbing these statistics are probably going to blow your mind you're going to look at the world differently but you need to look at the world differently even if you don't have children, you pro- you might be in a relationship and you don't understand that in intimate partner violence, people often say, why doesn't she leave? Or why doesn't he leave? Or why don't they leave? Well, because it doesn't happen when you think it does. And until you learn about that, then you might put yourself in a situation where you live a life of judgment of
0: others. It can be easy to look at things in a black and white way without, Absolutely. before you're truly informed and... Some of the issues. Yes. And do you find that the classroom is a safe place for the students to become more informed on these things?
1: It has been for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure what part of the way I deliver my materials helps facilitate that type of an environment, but it seems not to be broken. (laughs) What I do know though, is that before I started talking about my own experiences with the law being what some people call a victim, my students did mostly see me as someone who's just delivering the information. And now that I open up my classroom and share that, I'm someone who's lived the information. You're a
0: real person. You just aren't pulling something out of a textbook and out of a newspaper article and giving it to them. You're truly walking the walk. Yes. Now, I read the following in one of your course descriptions, and I found it fascinating. I'd love to have you comment on the various elements. It says, Crystal is a student favorite not surprising, (laughs) known for exposing students to fascinating real world examples such as cult development, pleading insanity, the prison system, prejudice, the bystander effect, music and rehabilitation, and the extreme collective mindset of North Korea. That is quite a ball of wax. Yeah, Yeah, um, I find I'm a media junkie.
1: As a social psychologist, I'm not only trained to constantly look for ways that the real world connects with my field, but I was driven to social psychology because I'm always looking for those things. And when I find something that just absolutely captures my attention, Maybe you've had one of these moments where you binge an entire show or you read an entire article when you have so many other things to do, right? (laughs) Yes. I'm like, okay, they they really have something here. If I'm stopping in my tracks, I bet my students will stop too. So I try to take these types of stories – and turn them into things that are more interactive in my classroom. And I do have to be thankful of journalists who are able to tell these great stories because I also find that telling a great story in my classroom has been incredibly helpful with students getting engaged. So I'm always looking for those really great
0: stories. That's terrific. Well, I'll tell you what, it caught my attention. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as the keynote speaker, Last year mm-hmm. at UNT's Forum on Teaching and Learning, you gave a presentation called It's How You Play the Game, mm-hmm. introducing the idea of gamification as a teaching mindset. That sounds so interesting. How
1: does gamification apply to learning? When I think about some of the things I loved as a child, it was playing games. It was shoots and ladders or sorry. I loved Tetris for many, many, many years. And to turn things into a game means that you're doing something besides just sitting and being passive. You are forced to engage. So I started reading a lot about ways that you can bring this more interactive element into the classroom. And luckily as a psychologist, we do a lot of research that requires one to figure out how can we take this phenomenon and how can we make it interactive in the lab in a way that we're able to manipulate these interactions to see if it really is having an impact on some outcome. And my desired outcome is always learning. So I started to think about what are ways that I could recreate these types of simulations in the classroom. And the first one I did was eyewitness identification.
0: I read something in your work about that, and I was hoping you would mention it because I am dying to hear about that.
1: Luckily, that's my whole Lunch and lunch spiel, okay. right, for Holly
0: coming up oh, in the terrific. future. yeah. terrific.
1: I find that so many people have such a good time doing it. Clearing
0: my calendar, right? that's for sure. That
1: I just love to <laughs> present it to as many audiences as I possibly can because really what it teaches us is, wow, this is actually what witnesses are going through when they're trying to identify some face or group of people that they saw commit a crime. And crimes are committed, I mean, every so many seconds in the United States. So we know that this is happening pretty frequently. And Elizabeth Loftus teaches us that while we think we have really good memories for people's faces, the smallest thing can throw us off. And it can lead to innocent people being incarcerated. So I actually created this simulation, I would say, four or five years ago. Tested it out in my classroom, and it went over beautifully. <laughs> to prove to people that they aren't quite as sharp that way as they think. Absolutely, because if well, you I can't wait read to about that. it, oh, yeah, that happens, but it wouldn't happen to me. Right. And I knew I had to make it happen to my students for them to really get it. So I created an eyewitness identification game so they would really get it. And then I did it here at UNT for my keynote, and... For faculty, right, who are highly educated, they probably know about this experiment.
0: And they're in a calm environment. Absolutely. There's no pressure. Nobody's
1: Absolutely. holding
0: a gun on them. True. <laughs>
1: and they still bombed. And they were cheating. They were looking off of each other's papers. And they looked very confused and upset. And I'm having a great time. And then the provost was there. And, yeah, most people did not get it right. Wow! So, yeah,
0: that's incredibly interesting. I remember my mother was robbed at gunpoint, mm. and when the police wanted to know more about the gentleman that robbed her, she said, "I saw a gun." Mm, right. <laughs> All I remember is a gun. Yeah, weapons focus. Yeah. Now you have another area of interest, and as a speech pathologist, I found this very interesting. Mm. You paired music mm-hmm. with physical therapy for yeah. stroke patients. Mm-hmm.
1: I watched my grandfather struggle when he was in a rehabilitation setting, and he had had several problems uh, neurologically. He had a tumor removed from his brain and desperately needed the rehabilitation, but he hated the exercises and very just, rote. He just wasn't yep wasn't happy to do them. Didn't like the person who was you know trying to help him, and I kept thinking, okay, what if we bring in some a little radio what can we do to make this more fun could why could i two-step with him just to get him to move and these ideas get projected very quickly and i started again pouring through research trying to figure out has anyone done something where familiar music is used as some medicinal tool so there is a documentary called alive inside where they load up ipods After they interview people who know those who are in this assisted living facility with Alzheimer's, they pull together these playlists of songs that were very popular when they were in their youth. They put in the headphones and then they record the reactions that they have for the first time. And these patients completely change. They're crying, they're singing the songs, they're smiling, and suddenly these songs act as these memory cues. And they're able to tell you so many stories about their lives. And I just remember crying on the couch and going, this is what I need to do. So I connected with a stroke researcher who then got me connected with a stroke rehabilitation facility. And I kind of turned myself into a little DJ. I made up a little interview to figure out, okay, what kind of music do you really like? And then I used a touch pad Toshiba laptop with Spotify loaded so they could touch to tell me what they liked because some of them wouldn't be able to speak very well. And the beauty of Spotify is once you touch one song or one album, it says, and these are others that are recommended. So from there, we had these really nice just trees of music that they would recognize. And I could play little snippets and I could watch their reactions. And from there, I put together this little 20 minute playlist. And then my team of physical therapists would then time their rehabilitative exercises to each of these songs. So each song had maybe five different exercises. They were all to the beat of the song and then of course it ends and we have the next song. This means we're starting our next set of five rehabilitative exercises and they would do this over and over and over and over. So probably by the fifth or sixth time my patients were able to already predict what their next exercise was going to be. They were laughing, they were singing along, they were doing many more exercises than what they were doing without the music. And the moment that really hit me was with a particular farmer who wouldn't do a basic exercise where you have to sit in a chair and then stand up and then sit down and then stand up. They were called sit to stands. My therapist could only get him to do four and that was not good enough. So she asked if we could start the music pairing early. I said, of course. And he did 43. Wow. And sang and cried the whole time.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And I thought, this is it. (laughs) I would think, too, I mean, you're engaging a different part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So you're just putting that much more into this healing brain in order to be able to recover from the trauma of a stroke. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, Music is so beautiful. Yes. That it can put you in a time when you had this you know, memory completely flood over you. So it's also familiar. And you're in a place where you know no one. You've lost a lot of your own abilities physically and sometimes mentally. And so sometimes the only thing we want is something familiar. And what I love about music is it can do that for you. And to also function as a cue, I also sent people home with their iPods and we would check in with them to talk about their exercises and they would come back in. Mm -hmm. And what we found is they remembered their exercises. And we often send people with stroke home earlier than I wish, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Because insurance. Mm -hmm.
1: So I thought, well, If we can help you remember your exercises to do at home, I think music in the playlist would be the way to do it. Put the music
0: on. Take Um, this iPod
1: with you, and I'm going to check in, and we're mm -hmm. going to invite you back and see how you're doing. And those with the music had much better memory for their exercises than those without. And those with the music stuck in the program, those without dropped
0: out pretty quickly. I can understand that. And Even in a normal exercise class, it's Mm -hmm. so much more fun to exercise to music just more fun makes you feel better better everything that's wonderful i hope they're continuing that i'm not sure yeah but
1: i did finally get the uh my first case study published i think two weeks ago
0: terrific so i'm
1: hoping to now i can springboard off there because the first one's always the hardest
0: (laughs) That's terrific. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're also currently involved in writing a textbook. What yes. What is the topic of that?
1: It is an Introduction to Psychology ah. textbook. Um, I am working on it with Sage Publications, and I got involved by just talking to my book rep, who thought I had some good ideas. And from there, I shared what I wanted to do for students in a digital setting, because we have a lot of students who are online. Or a lot of students who need that
0: extra help outside of the classroom, and from there I got a book deal. So here congratulations. I congratulations. <laughs> well, I am not surprised, and I'm also looking forward to looking at it. Me too. That's fantastic. Looking forward I to. And what can be done now with books, textbooks electronically is just so wonderful. There are so many connections that can be made, not just the written words. So yes. that's fantastic. Well, a search of the ratings given you by your former students shows an impressively high rating score. Nice work. Thank you. And we have that good fortune of having you at an upcoming lecture for Ollie. And this will be, do you have the title for it? You said eyewitness? I don't remember the
1: title. That's okay. But I do know it will be over eyewitness testimony. Terrific. And I will have our audience play the game.
0: And we will
1: collect pre and post data so that my audience can see if anything changed as a result of my interactions with
0: them. It will be interesting too now. Ollie will be a different population for Mm -hmm. you, won't it?
1: It will. And I haven't had this opportunity to try this out with people who already have advanced degrees, they've been teaching, they're hungry to learn more. It's often my poor students who were just forced to be (laughs) in my
0: classroom. (laughs) I have to tell you from personal experience being a member of OLLI and attending the classes with the people, the other OLLI members, there are some incredible people that come that have some amazing backgrounds. And the most, I think, exciting thing is their interest in learning. They have a terrific, terrific desire to keep sharp and keep learning. Now, in a previous interview that I listened that you had done before, you mentioned various resources Mm -hmm. for learning. And I just checked them out right away because I thought, oh, that sounds good. So if you want to mention them here, too, I think people might be interested in hearing. You had been listening to different podcasts. Yes, I listen to Hidden Brain religiously. Mm I listen to
1: a ton of Radiolab, probably because I'm a science nerd, and they always connect science to the real world, so I probably couldn't be as good of a pedagogue as I am without Radiolab and Hidden Brain. I also love the book Social Animal by David Brooks.
0: I downloaded that, actually. I haven't read it yet, but it looked very interesting.
1: It's wonderful. He takes a fictional story and weaves in scientific facts. So that as you're reading about these people's lives, you're also learning about science, which I think is brilliant.
0: It's like gamification. Absolutely. Oh, and I forgot to ask you something about Mm. gamification before we go too far away from that topic. You have something called Failing Forward. Yes. What is that?
1: I love the title. (laughs) I love it.
0: Failing Forward. It sounds so positive. So what I try to
1: do in my classroom is... I have a big final project, but I break it up into several pieces so that students have several opportunities to continue to get better. So for example, I have my students do a mini documentary. It's a five minute documentary. They've probably never done a documentary before. So in the beginning, we create interview questions. They will earn points for everything they do but the points aren't incredibly high stakes. And after I give them their feedback, they have an opportunity to improve with the next assignment. So these points continue to build, but they build in a way that if you miss one assignment or you totally bomb on something, you're gonna be okay. We're gonna dust you off and you're gonna have another opportunity. And then I have reading quizzes every week to make sure my students are reading before lecture, but I offer more reading quizzes than I require. So if you happen to miss one or bomb one, you've got three more opportunities. If you take all of them, I let you keep the points for extra credit. And I do the same thing with my exams. I have four, but you're only required to take three. If you take the fourth exam and do super well, we replace your lowest grade. If you totally bomb, we act like it never happened. It's between you and me. (laughs) So I really try to be as flexible as I can because I worked while I was a student there were times my life was in total chaos. I had a stalker in grad school.
0: That had to have thrown you right? off. But there's
1: still expectations. Yeah, that you get your sure. dissertation done. You show right, up for your exams. Right. So if I had had that kind of flexibility, I probably would have had a graduate experience that wasn't nearly as stressful. So I'm trying to create several opportunities so if my students fail, they know they can still move forward.
0: Well, that's terrific. I love everything that you do. Thank you. You really are a gift to your students, I have no doubt. They're a gift to me.
1: I love this field so much. It's
0: wonderful to see someone take learning for so many different populations and turn it into something that is exciting and fun to do. And also with these suggestions that you have for podcasts, we're so fortunate right now with the availability we have, with all of the resources we have. So thank you for mentioning those. Those wonderful. I appreciate you being here. It's been very exciting talking to you and I'm looking forward to attending your upcoming class I hope and being too. one of your lucky <laughs> students. Thank you so much, Crystal.
1: Thank you for having me. I have a wonderful time.
0: This has been Susan Supack speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Crystal Clayton. Thanks so much for listening.